The following lecture was delivered at the 12th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Palm Desert, California, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy the lecture, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yitzchak Shachit will now present his lecture, The Power of Prayer. We're going to talk about the power of prayer. We're going to analyze, and this forces me, in effect, to analyze all that much more what prayer achieves, how it works in our lives. Is it just placebo? What, what is it really all about? But let me, let me preface in the first instance by telling you this wonderful story, one of my favorite, apparently true, about an L.A. man who, whose wife put him on a very strict diet. And uh, she was impressed about how resilient and determined he, in fact, was until one Sunday morning, he came in with a half-eaten cheesecake. And she looks to him and she says to him, I knew it, you're weak, you have absolutely no self-control, you good for nothing. He said, whoa, slow down, woman, slow down. He says, why don't you first ask me what happened? She says, okay, go on, tell me what happened. He says, you know, I always avoid Fairfax Avenue so that I don't pass by Schwartz's Bakery and I'm not led into the path of temptation. She says, and? He says, and would you know it, I'm on my way back from Chabad House, just finished davening, and the next thing I know, I'm suddenly driving down Fairfax Avenue. And the next thing you know, I'm suddenly passing by Schwartz's Bakery. And there I look through in the window, and I see a cheesecake. It's got my name written all over it. And the wife looks at him and says, and, and what's your point? He says, you know what, in that moment I thought to myself, this must be divine providence. <laughs> so I looked to the heavens and I said, dear God, I made a little prayer. If that cheesecake is really intended for me, then I pray you ensure that I find a parking space right in front of the bakery, which you know, he says to his wife, is otherwise normally impossible. And she looks at him and says, and? He says, and would you believe it? Fourth time around the block, and there was the parking space right in front of the bakery. You know, we all utter prayers of sorts. Sometimes the prayers are personal ones, Usually, they're structured ones, but what's it really all about? That's the question. Have you ever asked yourself, what are you hoping to achieve when you pray? What do you really look to accomplish? A child wants something. So a child asks mom or dad for what they want or need. Okay. I mean, is that really what prayer is all about? Is it as basic as that? Because if it is, Frankly, that's an awful lot of asking that we do. In fact, it sounds incredibly selfish, if not downright narcissistic, that we might be asking for our needs all day, every day, three times a day, just asking for what you want. If your child, your kid did that to you, I reckon after a while you'd get kind of fed up, fed up with all the nagging ongoing. And furthermore, if that's really what prayer is all about, as a parent, when you see your kid's shoes are torn, does he have to ask you for new shoes? When you see your child missing a toothbrush, does she have to request from you a new toothbrush? I think it can be safely assumed that you, as a responsible parent, are very much aware of your child's essential needs. They don't need to ask for it. So when it comes to our supreme parent, he knows our every need, why do I need to ask? Why do I need to pray? Think about it. A little while back, I was standing 
this goes back a couple of years ago, with a perplexed wife who was given the devastating news that her rather young, deep coma husband's remote chances of survival were very slim. And she reacted as any loved one would. She would consider the implications of what to do in the moment, what to do more precisely after. And then, of course, she asked my opinion on the matter, and I categorically refused to go there. I insisted, as I will always, that for as long as there is life, there is hope. And for as long as there is hope, we have to pray, and we have to believe in a better tomorrow. Isn't it really that same hope which enabled Jews from time immemorial to always endure? If you consider the Jews in Egypt, even as they were utterly absorbed in their bondage, as soon as the opportunity presented itself with the passing of the Pharaoh, the Torah attests to the fact that what did they do? First thing, they took time out to pray. By Yitzhak Hashem, they cried out to God. They didn't abandon hope, they didn't despair, and immediately it says God responded, God heard their prayers, and salvation came about. And that's the reality of how prayer manifests itself throughout all the ages, throughout every trial and tribulation that we endured over the course of time. But what's at the core? The Hasidic master, Rabbi Meir of Premishlan, he lived at the foot of a steep hill, and every day in the winter snow, regardless of the ice, he would be able to trek all the way down this hill or up the hill and then down the other side in order to make his way to the mikvah, to immerse himself in a ritualarium prior to actual prayer. And of course, doing that, climbing down an icy hill in the cold of winter when everything is frozen over, well, his Hasidim, his followers, reflected and said, this surely is a miracle. Lofty rabbi able to achieve such a feat, quite fantastic. He lived at the time of the Enlightenment movement, the Haskalah, where many of them, of course, mocked the idea, a miracle, shmiracle, come on, he might be an old man, but he has a tremendous sense of balance. And in order to demonstrate the point, they decided to gather their most athletic and able-bodied men to demonstrate that they can do the same sort of thing, which is precisely what they set out to do on one particular day. And as they started to trek down the mountain, it's slippery, one lost his footing and ended up at the bottom of the hill breaking an arm, another lost his footing, breaking a leg, and so it ended up they're all at the bottom in a heap with one broken thing or another. Now, of course, when they're all lying there convalescing, there is a mitzvah of Bikrocholim, of visiting the sick. So who goes to visit them? Of course, none other than Rabbi Meir himself to fulfill the mitzvah. And then one of them finally summoned the courage and turned to him and said, Rebbe, come on, between you and us, it's not really a miracle, is it? And he looked with a kind smile and he said, no, it most certainly is not. As menis tsugebundin if you're attached up above, then you don't fall down below. You see, in Hebrew, the word for prayer, of course, is tefillah. Tefillah means attachment. When we pray, we are creating a bond between ourselves and our Creator. There are moments every single day when there might be some disconnect. Not intentional, I hasten to stress, but in the moment, our eye is off the ball, so to speak. We're submerged in work, we're caught up in family concerns, we're 
otherwise absorbed in other sorts of mundane pursuits. We're busy with other stuff, with life. And so during those more, call them material moments, we tend to be more self-centered rather than God-centered. And maybe, just maybe in those moments, we believe in our own prowess rather than acknowledging how everything is ultimately from above, how we are essentially dependent on a higher order. So when we pause to pray over the course of a day, whether morning, afternoon, or evening, it's a process of putting things back together, of becoming more God-centered once more. When we pray, then in the moment, there are only two things in the universe, God and ourselves. We're shut off in those moments from absolutely everything else around us. And frankly, if we didn't have those moments of prayer to recalibrate our mindset and our attitude, then we risk falling down the rabbit hole. So on one level, prayer is about connecting to above so that we ensure that we don't fall down below. There was a woman who once came to see me in my office before I was in my current community in Mill Hill when I first started out in a small town in Richmond in South London. And she came to tell me, because she saw my picture in the paper, local paper, talking about me having just come to town, she came to tell me that she doesn't believe in anything Jewish though she might be. Of course, my initial thought was, though I didn't relay it to her, lady, if you don't believe in anything, why on earth are you coming to tell me? You don't need a man of the cloth. If anything, you need a shrink. But actually, she did come to tell me because, frankly, any thinking, feeling Jew, as much as they don't believe, they're bothered by the fact that they don't believe, which essentially means that somewhere, albeit a little deeper, they do believe and they just want some spiritual mentor to help them come to better grips and help them tap into it. But then I asked this woman, were you ever in a critical situation? Were you ever in dire need? And she thought for a few moments and she considered and she says, yes, she recalls one particular time that she was driving down a country lane with her husband and all of a sudden he had a severe asthma attack. It was a desperate situation and I asked her to think back to that moment and what did you do? She looks to me and she says, what do you mean? I attended to him. I mean, the car slowed down and I made sure to take out his breathalyzer and to help him do whatever it is, et cetera, et cetera. I said, yes, but in that moment of such severe perplexity, what were you perhaps saying in that moment in time? I'm sure you were calling out his name, Frank, Frank, or whatever it is, but were you saying anything else? So she suddenly realizes where I'm going with this. Like, did she find herself suddenly saying, oh, dear God, please help him or something like that? And she looks to me and she says, I didn't invoke God's name, if that's what you mean. Actually, I prayed to my dead mother. And at this point, I couldn't help myself. And I looked to her and I said, lady, if God don't exist, your dead mother isn't going to help you either. <laughs> but the point is this. She found herself praying, whoever it was to. Why? Why is it that even the so-called self-proclaimed atheist also finds themselves when in that moment of dire need turning to prayer, if not otherwise regularly, certainly at that time of need. Because at the core, there is a soul that is eminently connected to its divine source. 
Sometimes, yes, it's the body, it's the ego, it's the animalistic traits, the appetitive powers that they mask over this truth. They mask over this essence. But when push comes to shove, quite literally, then that surfaces, and that in turn leads to prayer as the ultimate medium by which the soul that might have otherwise somewhat fallen down here can reconnect and pull itself back up to above. You see, here's the problem. We are naturally inclined to relate to things of a physical nature. We are not naturally disposed toward spirituality. To be sure, spirituality is our true natural state. Deep down, that is who we truly are. We're spiritual beings. But our spiritual identity, which is our souls, is covered up with a body, with layer upon layer of what has its own needs and thus inhibits the spiritual yearnings and ambitions of the soul. And the consequence of this is that many of the problems that we have, many of the psychological difficulties that we experience, is because of the inflated expectations that we have of ourselves on account of our sense of pride and ego. And when there is then inner conflict between not being able to live up to those exaggerated expectations and our otherwise innate spiritual self, that's what gives way to all kinds of stress. And there is a challenge to get our material selves to more or less appreciate something spiritual. I mean, if you talk to an animal, it's going to be very hard for you to get the animal to accept something spiritual. Try talking philosophy to your cat or dog. It's not going to appreciate what you're trying to say to it. Our physical selves, in many respects, is like that cat or dog. Hence, it's referred to our animalistic self. It's not interested in spirituality. The only difference is, unlike an animal, it can be reasoned with. If we can get to the rationality of our physical selves and speak to it, then we can say, look, look at how great God is as the creator. Look at how he creates the food that you eat, the world that you inhabit, your very life and existence. That, my friends, is what prayer seeks to achieve. This is key. It's not really so much about talking to God. It's about having a conversation with yourself. It's about having a conversation with the rational animal that masks over the pristine soul. It's about trying to remove all that which inhibits our spiritual selves. When we pray, we lift ourselves out of the inner turmoil and conflict whereby we are more in touch with our true identity, and then all those problems that we might otherwise perceive or imagine in our minds are then seen in perspective. The stresses begin to dissolve, and that, frankly, is the power of prayer. There's this man, a self-proclaimed atheist, who was climbing Mount Everest when he suddenly lost his footing, and he starts to fall, and he cries out to God, and he says, as he holds onto a branch, he says, look, if there's anybody out there, can you help me? And to his utter shock and dismay, a voice booms back and says, do you believe? He says, whoa, um, 
Uh, well, okay, yeah, let's just say that I do. Let go of the branch with your right hand. Is if I let go of the branch with my right hand, I'm going to reduce my survival chances by 50%. Do you believe? Yeah, I, I, I guess I do. I mean, I'm talking to something. Then let go of the branch with your right hand. And he proceeds to do so. He says, okay, now what? Do you believe? Well, obviously, I let go of the branch. Of the, let go of the branch now with your left hand. What are you, kidding me? That's it. Game over. Do you believe? He goes, yes, I do. Then let go of the branch with your left hand. And the man pauses, and he thinks for several moments. And he says, look. Is there anyone else up there that I can talk to? <laughs> Judaism regards prayer as an essential constituent of religion. Prayer is for the soul as food is for the body. The act of prayer and the belief in God are interdependent principles. So yes, during a time of need or when seeking to express gratitude, that's what we do. We turn to prayer. But you can't just jump right in there. You have to genuinely believe in what you're doing, in what you're saying, in who you're talking to, and then ultimately in the intended outcome. In fact, the Mishnah tells us that in the days of old, the pious, Hasidim HaRishonim, the ultimate original pious, used to spend an hour in meditation before prayer, something that many Hasidim will have done always through the ages. The obvious reason for this, again, is because they didn't just want to go through the motions or pay some kind of lip service. They wanted to fundamentally believe in what they were doing. They wanted to be better focused on what they were saying and thus to achieve what prayer is meant to achieve, namely to get us more in tune with our spiritual selves. So at this point, I'd like you to consider this curious and yet equally powerful statement in the Talmud, where one rabbi, Rabbi Elazar, tells us, from the day that the temple was destroyed, all the gates of prayer were closed, except for the gate of tears. Now, the rabbi, actually, to be sure, was talking in terms of how you're supposed to treat your wife and to be very careful not to bring her to tears because her thoughts and her prayers, by way of her tears, will be immediately heard upon high. But it begs an altogether different question. If all other gates of prayer are closed, how on earth are we ever supposed to hope to achieve what our prayers are meant to achieve? How are we supposed to hope to get our prayers answered? So you'll tell me, yes, okay, but hey, the gate of tears is open. Okay, but frankly, when is the last time you really cried whilst you were praying, unless the cantor, the chazan, was really that bad. But consider the following analogy. Two friends are extremely close, where their homes are completely open to one another. You literally go wandering into each other's homes. Sometimes you can be so close enough that we just walk into each other's homes without even knocking. But one day, they have a disagreement. They have a falling out. And that door, it's no longer open. Now, in order to enter, you have to knock that much more pleadingly, crying, begging to be let in in the hope of being able to elicit a response. You see, in temple times, of course, there was an enhanced relationship. There was an enhanced manifestation of godliness in the world. Our relationship with God was such that we had easy access into his home, and frankly, he walked freely in our homes. 
we were in a perpetual state of attachment to above. But upon destruction of the temple, for lack of a better expression, we had a falling out. To be sure, we made the first move. We shut God out of our homes. We allowed for all sorts of philosophies and lifestyles that are antithetical to divinity to pervade, in effect, forcing him out the door as it were. We fell down below. In response, now when we want to penetrate the higher realms, if we want to reconnect to up above, we have to knock that much louder. The gates may be closed now, unlike before. Nevertheless, let's be clear, it doesn't say we've been barred entry. The gate is closed, not locked, not sealed. Maybe we can't walk straight in. We just have to knock more. We simply have to persevere in a more relentless manner than ever before. That's how I would understand this Talmudic statement at a basic level. But I think there's an altogether different and deeper understanding of this statement as well, in line with our earlier analysis. And for that, we need to take a moment and understand the whole structure of the prayer book as we know it. The content, of course, is made up of three primary parts. There is discussing sacrifices, as we find in the beginning. Then there's a whole range of paragraphs talking about praising God, and then ultimately putting forth our personal needs. Three essential parts to the prayer book, and that prompts three immediate questions. First, why on earth do I need to reference this antiquated notion of sacrifice? If it's something that took place in temple times, so be it. What's it got to do with me in this 21st century? It's one thing if I'm bringing them, but if I'm not, what's the point, purpose, and value in just simply talking about them? Second, praising God. What's that all about? You know, the Torah says, and you shall serve him with all your heart. In reference to God, says the Talmud. Indeed, from here, we derive the mitzvah, the very basic principle of prayer. That's how you serve God. Which then raises the question, because insofar as prayer is a divine command, then why on earth do I need to praise God? When praise is intuitive, when praise is instinctive, when I'm naturally inclined to tell you how amazing I think you are, then that's meaningful. Then the praise is significant. But if it doesn't come from me, if you're simply forcing me, if you're ordering me to praise you, then that hardly makes it meaningful. It rings hollow. You put a gun to my head and say, Rabbi, tell me how great you think I am. What's the point and purpose in that? So God commands me to pray, which entails praise, which means he's in effect commanding me to praise him. Again, what's the point and purpose in that? And thirdly, as per the question we asked at the outset, this business about stipulating our needs before God. When is the last time, again, that your child had to tell you that they need food? that they need clothes. You look at your child, you know what they need. Surely God is very much aware of our essential needs. In fact, more aware of our needs than we indeed might be. So why do I have to stipulate my needs before God? 
You know, when you think about it, the whole prayer book makes absolutely no sense. The antiquated sacrifices, which have no relevance to me today, me praising God or God commanding me in effect to praise him, which makes no sense either, and my requirement to stipulate my needs before God when he already knows what they are long before even I know what they are. How does any of that make sense? Well, here's a little insight. In fact, here's a bit of a mind-blowing insight into pretty much everything you do as a Jew. Why do we do mitzvot? Don't look at me, I'm asking you. Why do we do mitzvot? Sorry? Because we're commanded to do so. So here's the question. Sorry? To be connected to Hashem. But the question is this. Does God need our mitzvot? Does God need me to put on tefillin? Or do I need to put on tefillin in order to bring me to a greater bond with God and to appreciate how my mind and my heart, as symbolized by the tefillin, should be dedicated to him? Does God really need you to light Shabbat candles? Or do you need to light Shabbat candles in order to bring you to a deeper bond with God and to appreciate how it is he who brings radiance and illumination into your life and into our world? Moses himself, in his final words of farewell to the Jewish people, says very categorically, Im matiten lai. If you do good, if you do righteousness, what are you giving him? Conversely, he says, and when you sin, what you think you're offending him, you think you're adversely affecting him, that's not what it's all about. So indeed, when we do righteousness, what is it really all about? In other words, you're not doing him any favors. You're doing yourself a favor. And you're doing yourself a favor by virtue of the mitzvah that you fulfill. God doesn't need us to fulfill mitzvot. We need us to fulfill them in order to bring us to a deeper connection and greater appreciation of godliness. And in a very similar vein, here's a newsflash. God doesn't need our praise during prayer. But rather, we need to praise God in order to bring ourselves to a better understanding and appreciation of his greatness. Indeed, God does not need us to specify our personal needs. Of course he knows what we need, what we want, better than we know. But we have to express those needs nonetheless in order to enhance our awareness of our dependability on a higher order. Like I said before, prayer more than it is a conversation with God is a conversation with ourselves. Hence, the emphasis is, and you shall serve him with all your heart. Why not, I don't know, with all your head? With your whole body, for that matter. The Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud says, God says, give me your heart, because when your heart is mine, then you are mine. The heart is the source of blood flow. It is the source of circulation. It is the flow of life. Metaphysically, it is the medium through which humanness expresses itself. And from the heart, 
stems the ascending aspirations of the soul to its source in God. And that then explains also why at the outset of prayer we talk so much about sacrifices. And here again, this is key. Let's consider the whole notion of sacrifice. When you look in the Torah, at the very beginning, when we're introduced to the whole idea of sacrifice, it says, Adam ki when man will sacrifice from you a sacrifice to God. And you may well be familiar with the famous question, Hasidic question, why the reference, it's a grammatical inaccuracy, seemingly so, when man will sacrifice from you a sacrifice to God. It should really say, when man from amongst you will sacrifice to God. What's the inversion of the lettering, of the wording over here, when, God, when, you, when man will sacrifice from you? So Hasidism, of course, points out that this verse encapsulates the whole underlying theme of sacrifice. Namely, that Adam Kiakrovo, man will sacrifice, Mikem. It has to be really from you. Frankly, the closest man could ever really get to God would be to sacrifice his own self. But that principle is abhorred in the Jewish religion. So the next best opportunity is to sacrifice an animal which symbolizes the surrender of the animalistic self, the self-abnegation, if you will, before God, demonstrated through the particular sacrifice that was being brought. But in the absence of the temple, many prayers were implemented in place of sacrifice. Hence, we begin with referencing sacrifices at the very beginning in order to remind ourselves that even before all the praises and even before all the stipulation of all of our needs, we need to ensure that our prayers are very much like sacrifices. By definition, you have to park your ego. You have to put aside your natural desires of heart and body. You have to ensure that through the prayers you will become refined to the point of concern only with the necessary and proper. And so it follows in sequence. First the sacrifices to get you into the right frame of mind. And then, of course, moving on to the praises to get you to appreciate how great God really is and how much of a difference he makes in all of your life. And then, ultimately, the stipulation of your needs to get you to appreciate how you are dependent upon God for all those needs. And that nothing but nothing is ultimately left to your own prowess, your own physical ability. And that then explains that earlier Talmudic statement. Indeed, following the destruction of the temple, we no longer conduct the sacrificial ritual. The gates which were previously opened for those prayers which accompanied sacrifices, they are now closed. And if we are to penetrate those gates, then we have to make our prayers all-encompassing to reach not just what the prayers of yesteryear achieved, but what the very sacrifices themselves accomplished. As we said, when we pray, we aspire to an unconditional surrender to God, whereby we perceive the divine aspect in everything. We become utterly detached in those moments from the material of this world and thoroughly attached to the divine. That's key. That's how we open the gates of prayer and then open all those channels for the blessings that we seek in our lives. Okay. So we get the underlying significance of prayer and the state of mind we have to aspire to. 
Now let's consider something else. What actually happens in the moment? How does it work? How far can it go? How much can it achieve? You know, we're all familiar with the famous statement that we make at the pinnacle of the high holiday service when we call out in unison, Teshuvah, Tefillah, Tzedakah, repentance, prayer, and charity can avert all kinds of negative decree. How does prayer, let's just focus on prayer right now, how does prayer achieve this? Well, using the aforementioned analogy, it's simply a case of a child begging a parent to kind of forgive and forgo until the parent relents. But does that really make sense? I mean, you know, you were a kid and mom said, you have to go to your room. So you stand there and you plead and ultimately mom changes her mind. Is that what prayer does? Does it get God to change his mind? Through prayer you can avert negative decrees? Is it even possible to attribute the notion to God of changing his mind? God is perfect. Perfection implies absolute. There's no change. So what's going on? For that, I need to share with you a wonderful and rather famous Talmudic story about the king Chizkiyahu, who became critically ill and was then visited by the prophet Isaiah, who said to him, pack your bags, you're going home. You're going back to your maker. And when the king protested as to why, he was told, well, listen, you know, you never even fulfilled the very first mitzvah of being fruitful and multiplying, of having any children. In fact, you never even got married. To which Chizkiyahu, the king, replied, he said, yeah, so there's a reason for that. It's because, frankly, I have a little bit of prophecy of my own, and I know that if I was to get married, I would have a child. That child would go on to become my successor, and frankly, he'd be the worst thing to happen to the Jewish people ever. So I chose not to get married. And Isaiah then said to him, what has to be one of the single most profound statements in Judaism ever, that may be so. But still, you do what you have to do and let God worry about what he has to do. And Chizkiah was intrigued by this. He said, you know what, you're right. I'm, I'm going I'm to get married. He said, no, it's too late, forget it. At which point, says the Talmud, he turned to the wall and he prayed and he was spared. And the Talmud concludes from that little anecdote that even when the sword is pressed up against your neck, Never give up hope. Such is the power of prayer. Well, what happened? Did God decree one thing and now through the power of prayer he changed God's mind? How did he turn it around? How did he avert the decree? Meanwhile, he went on. He got married. He had a son, Menashe, who went on to rule thereafter, leading, yes, all the Jewish people astray into idolatry just as he had foreseen. And there was a point when the Menashe himself was captured by the enemy, and as he sat there languishing in a prison, he turned to pray to every other idol he ever identified with to no avail. And then, in a moment of serious self-reflection, he paused, and he considered, and he looked to God in the heavens, and he prayed from the very depth of his heart and soul, and he too was spared. How does that work? Here's your answer. Before God, everything is there potentially. Everything is preconceived to become actualized and revealed at a proper time. In which case, God provides already from the beginning that a real change below can evoke what seems to be a change up above. By definition, 
above there are, so to speak, any number of possibilities and states of potential decrees reflecting any of the number of possibilities and states of man, whether as an individual or collectively as a community. Man's present state determines the applicable possibility to become realized. In simple terms, before God, there is a Yitzchak Shachet A, and there is a Yitzchak Shachet B, and there is a Yitzchak Shachet C, and so on and so forth. And relative to my individual disposition, there is already a predetermined end result. So if I choose to act in accordance with Yitzchak Shachet A, then God already has predetermined that this is going to be my end result. And if I choose, yes, through exercising my free choice that God has granted me to act in accordance with Yitzchak Shachet C, then there is an altogether different predetermined end result for that mode. So what appears to be a change up above is really only, in effect, a change down below. It is a change in man, not in God. Hence, when there is a negative decree of whatever sort, we pray. Because when we pray, if the prayer is real, then we are changing. If indeed we pray in accordance with the way we're supposed to, namely that we allow ourselves to become so self-absorbed in the divine, even if only for the moment, then at that precise moment in time, we are a different person than we were beforehand. And if we are a different person, then we evoke a totally different emanation in accordance with our new current disposition. That's powerful stuff. Someone once remarked to the Rebbe as to the hypocrisy of the Jew in the pew on Yom Kippur. I mean, like, what kind of joke is that? Coming in and out for 15 minutes, half an hour on Yom Kippur, but otherwise not being there for the rest of the day, let alone the rest of the year. And the Rebbe replied and said something to the effect of when that man wakes up in the morning and he doesn't even realize it's Yom Kippur, but ultimately in those 15 minutes suddenly comes to know that it is, and he makes his way to Shoal, and he's there for 15 minutes. Before he goes off to the office, he said, if you knew how precious those 50 minutes are before God. Why? Because in that moment, he's somebody else. He's not the guy, whoever he might have been the day before, and he's not the guy, whoever he might be the day after. In these 15 minutes, He's there because he wants to be there. It's real. He's connected up above so as not to fall down below. So you can be a lowlife as the King Manasseh was. You can have terrible decrees against you, God forbid, as again was the case with Manasseh or Chizkiah or whatever. But when you're in shul because you want to be there and you're praying because you want to pray and your intent is absolute and objective without ulterior motive, then at that precise moment, you are not the same person who might have been biting into a cheeseburger for breakfast the day before. You're somebody else with an altogether different, more positive end result awaiting you. That's the power of prayer. Which leaves us with a final point for consideration. Do all prayers get answered? Sometimes it seems that we ask for something, we pray for something, and it doesn't happen. Or doesn't it? I just got my 10-minute notice, so I'm going to try and make this as clear as I can in the shortness of time. There's an interesting dispute in the Talmud between rabbis about when we get judged. Some rabbis maintain we get judged in Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Others maintain we get judged every single day, if not, in fact, every single hour. Which begs a question. If you get judged every single day, then why on earth are the prayers so long on Rosh Hashanah? And conversely, if according to the other rabbis you get judged on Rosh Hashanah, then why on earth are we needing to pray 
every single day. Hasidism explains there's no contradiction. There's no real dispute over here. We get judged in Rosh Hashanah, and we get judged every single day as well. You see, on Rosh Hashanah, God determines in the first instance how much of a portion is going to be allocated to you over the course of the coming year. But then every single day, it's kind of like drawing from a bank account, God also determines how much of that you're going to be able to draw down into your practical reality. So by way of example, God might determine there's a million dollars for me on Rosh Hashanah, which I managed to evoke through my prayers. That happens on Rosh Hashanah, that's why I need to pray. But I still need to do something in order to bring it from the spiritual realm into this material world because there's a huge divide between up there and down here. Otherwise, it remains there. It gets stuck. Yes, it's for me. I will receive it, albeit in some spiritual way. My soul will experience the million dollars. How, I don't know. So on Rosh Hashanah, the ultimate day of reckoning, I pray to receive a favorable judgment to have the million dollars allocated to me. But then there's a daily judgment to determine if I can tap into the account and bring it down into my practical reality. And for that, I need to engage in daily prayer as well. But you know what? There are two types of rivers. There is a river that flows steadily along that can easily get dammed up with mud and bricks and sticks and whatever else besides. And I have to slowly take that all away in order to let the water flow through. That's one form of prayer. Then there's also the raging river which gushes through, where nothing can get in the way. The water flows in abundance. That's another form of prayer. When the priests did their service in the temple at the altar, bringing sacrifices, they were able to tap into that deeper level of extreme divine compassion, enabling the water, the blessings, to gush forth like a raging river. Maybe sometimes we wonder why it is that our prayers aren't being answered. Well, that all depends. Are we praying such that it's like removing the dam, clearing the blockages to let the water flow through? Are we doing enough in order to be able to clear the obstruction? Or are we praying such that our prayers are like the sacrifices of yesteryear, where we're standing in prayer like the priest at the altar, utter self-abnegation, which then enables the river, the abundance of blessing, to come gushing forth? The Talmud tells a story about a rabbi, Rabbi Hanina Mendoza, who was utterly poor. He was so totally impoverished to a point where, again, time doesn't allow it to go into the detail of the story to reflect how destitute he was. But there was a point in time when his wife, who had to pretend baking kalos by creating smoke out of her oven, etc., turned to him and said, how long more do we have to endure this poverty? Pray to God and ask that an end come to this. And he did. And the next morning they, they woke to find the golden leg of a table lying in their garden. All their problems are going to be solved. And then that night, the wife had a dream in which she saw all the many great rabbis like her husband sitting in heaven, studying before the divine throne, each at their own three-legged table, but her husband was sitting there at a wobbly table that only had two legs. And she looked to the heavens and she prayed to God. And she, said, she turned to her husband, rather, and she said to him, please pray to God to take that golden table leg back up to heaven which is what happened. And the Talmud concludes and says, the second miracle was greater than that of the first. Why? Because in heaven, they intend to typically give. They don't typically take away. The unique exception to this was specifically in the context of sacrifice. God creates this world. God brought nothingness 
into something. He gives, creatio ex nihilo. And we continue to make use of everything that God gave us. The one noted exception was when it was sacrificed because the sacrifice was being taken, your hard-earned animal brought upon the altar, turned back into nothingness. The world is all about heaven giving. The sacrifice was the unique instance of heaven taking. And the same thing transpires when we pray. When we are actually engaged in prayer, we're like undergoing, as mysticism tells us, the famous ladder of Jacob's dream, which connects this world here to the world up above. And as there were four rungs on the ladder, mysticism tells us, again, these are the different stages in the structure of prayer. And the idea is that when you reach that highest rung in prayer itself, you are giving back to heaven. Your prayers are like the sacrifices. You are now reaching to the pinnacle such that in that moment of particularly the recitation of the Amida, you're one-to-one -one alone with God. It is in that one moment that in as much as God is always giving you, you are actually giving back to God. Time isn't going to allow me to talk to you about a certain scientific study that was made in regard to prayer as well. But I do want to leave you with this. There was a Shlomazel who became very from, much to the dismay of his in-laws. They had many an argument, especially as the way he dropped out of the family business and decided to pray and learn all day. And there he was every single morning opening up his window and saying, dear God, please provide for me. And every day his in-laws would feel bad for their daughter and they would make sure to put some food over there outside his home. And every day he would look to the windows and thank God through prayer for having delivered. And one day the mother-in-law couldn't take it anymore and she went running. He opens the window and he cries out, dear God, please provide for me. And sure enough, the food gets dropped off and he cries out again, dear God, thank you for providing for me. And the mother-in-law, she goes running over with the bill in her hand and he says, Meshugana, enough of this nonsense. It's got nothing to do with God. I give you this food every day. To which he looks to the heavens and says, dear God, you're greater than I thought. Not only do you provide for me, but you get the devil to deliver it. Here's the point, friends. No prayer is ignored. No tears go unnoticed. But the response is not always in the form that we expect it to be. As much as we can evoke divine compassion, and maybe in the process, like we said, alter destiny, or what seems to be so, the true believer appreciates that prayers are always answered, albeit that sometimes the answer is no. In the finale of Yom Kippur, at that holiest of moments, during the Elah prayer, we ask God, you who hears the sounds of weeping, store our tears in your flask and save us from cruel decrees. Why are we asking God to store our tears? What is the significance of this? Because not always are our prayers answered in the way that we want them to be. But God, in his own infinite wisdom, for reasons known to him which defy our comprehension, doesn't grant us our wishes always at times that we demand them. But that doesn't mean that they are in vain. Those tears, they're stored away. He knows what is in our best interest. Those prayers are always filed. They may be taken out and answered in a time, in another time, or they may spill over to impact others in different ways. We're not privy to all of God's mechanisms, and we don't get his system, his every word, but we should know that every prayer is accounted for. Every prayer makes an impact. 
In physics, the laws of conservation of energy says that energy can never be destroyed. It just changes from one form to another. No prayer is ever lost. No tear is ever wasted. Your requests will always be granted. It just may be in some unexpected form. So keep praying because every word is stored away. It will rebound, it will impact in ways unimaginable, and sometimes when you least expect it, just always remember the frame of mind that you have to be in during those moments. That woman that I began with, whose husband was desperately ill, there was a moment when I watched that wife literally throw herself on her husband's virtually lifeless body and in a gut-wrenching cry, she yelled from the depths of her soul, Dear God, bring him back to me. Ten days later, he came out of his coma. Today, he walks the streets of my community, thank God, in good health once more. The doctors said it was a miracle. Actually, I think it was a little simpler than that. It's the power of prayer. You know why? Because if you connect to above, you don't fall down below. May we all learn to pray a little more and thereby experience goodness in our lives and in our world. No prayer, no supplication, no plea, no tear gets ignored. So by all means, continue to reach out. Heaven gives you so much. Always ensure during prayer to give something of yourself back and let all the blessings roll in. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.